Good afternoon, Tennessee Valley. This is the Valley Labor Report. Uh, we are bringing you a bonus midweek stream, uh, testing out a new location here with our friends at Spice Radio. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host and fellow agitator Adam Keller, and it is uh, Wednesday, July 28th, 2021, and we're broadcasting live only online from Spice Radio in Huntsville, Alabama. Uh, you'll be able to access a recording of this whenever you want on our YouTube channel. And uh, so to, tonight, what? so the, the, the reason that we're doing a midweek stream is we're going to be trying to transition into a more kind of uh, visually appealing set, uh, something that makes more sense for, for a visual format than our WVNN studio. As you can tell, you know, if you've actually Actually, if you've actually watched it and you d- you don't just listen, you know you can tell that's not like you know that's not a visual place, right? We just set up a camera and then we talk, and it's not you know it's not very pretty. And so we're trying to to do something that's a little bit be- better for the vi- visuals. And um, Spice Radio has been doing uh, some really good stuff uh, down here in Ben's basement, so we appreciate him. Uh, our we we had a really nice camera; it went kaput. We're going to try to figure that out. We're going to try to figure out some graphics this is our first night down here in spice radio so there's there's going to be there have been some hiccups as you can see we're like 30 minutes late and there's going to be some more hiccups uh we're going to get we're going to get uh you know better visuals better camera uh better setup i mean we're going to keep keep making it better but this is going to be the this is the first night we're really excited we love the folks down here at spice radio so again want to thank them so much for uh giving us uh you know letting us have access to their studio and we are joined tonight by um Hannah Eisenman. She is the secretary for the New Yorker Union, and she is an Alabama native. So, Hannah, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I really appreciate it. Really looking forward to talking to you. Thank you, Thank so, you much so much for having, for having me. me. It's, it's great, great to be here. here. Absolutely. Welcome, welcome. So, um, the, you know, the reason that we, that, that I reached out to y'all's union on Twitter is because, uh, you know, y'all had a fantastic campaign, um, and it was really successful. Y'all got a really good contract. I saw that, that your union tweeted that, uh, so, some of the members with the lowest pay got a 63% raise if I read that right. I mean, that is just unheard of. So uh, that's why I wanted to talk to you. I wanted to talk to you about that campaign, talk to you about that contract. But when we talked today, I found out that you're from Alabama. You called and you had an (laughs) Alabama area code. And I was like, what is this? What's going on? So uh, Hannah... What what are you doing in, in the in the Big Apple with all them funny talking people? <laughs> Walk us through how 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 you came to like what you're doing. Yeah, definitely. I so I grew up in Birmingham. I went to the Alabama School of Fine Arts. Started there in the seventh grade. Nice. I was in the creative writing department there, um, and so you know studied all kinds of writing. Um, and yeah, I always wanted to live in New York. If you had asked me when I was like 16, what I wanted to do with my life, I would have said mm-hmm. that I wanted to live in New York and be a poet. And if I was really lucky, work at the New Yorker. Um, and all of those things miraculously ended up happening. Um, but, you know, I have so much affection for Alabama. I love going back there. My family is all still there. Um, and I really, yeah, don't think that I would have come to poetry without it. Mm-hmm. Like, it's really where I see my roots. And it's just like an amazing place full of amazing people. And um yeah, I'm really grateful to have grown up there. But uh, yeah, I think 
I think I didn't appreciate it enough while I was living there, which is part of why I love going back so much. <laughs> right, right. I think there, there's a, a lot that, that seems to be like kind of a common theme in, in the human experience is not really appreciating something while you have it. Uh, <laughs> so what you, you said that, you know, growing up here, really, you wouldn't have have had the poetry that you do without it. Like, what are kind of some of the themes and the stuff that you that you write about for The New Yorker? Well, so I don't, first of all, I don't actually write poetry for The New Yorker. I'm a okay. poetry editor there. So I see, I've actually I never see. published any poetry there. But I do write about poetry there. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the poetry that I'm really interested in is poetry that's um, engaged with history and with the ways that history is like really present and palpable in in the present um, mm-hmm. and the ways that it's kind of con- constantly affecting the ways that we speak to each other and the ways that we treat each other and the stories that we tell. And I really think that um, the South and Alabama is just so rich in stories and so rich in history and I think you know is has a really complicated history and I think um you know growing up and kind of then leaving and sort of reckoning with that and kind of having to you know being able to see um the place that you grew up and the stories that you're familiar with from like many different perspectives I think is um definitely something that uh that I value it in writing um, that kind of complexity. And that's the kind of work that I'm interested in at The New Yorker is trying to just really find a range. I mean, this is the other thing is that there's so many great poets from Alabama and from the South Mm. um, and from all over this country and being able to, and hopefully always um, finding that work, identifying that work and bringing it to a larger audience. That's what I want to do. Right. Right. Well, I think that the trying to bring out that, uh, you know, the history that's, that's an interesting segue to to the the union campaign because there had been a history of, of news organization unionization in the past like that it was it was pretty common for uh newspapers and magazines to be union and that has really kind of gone by the wayside and in the last two or three or four years, we have seen just an explosion of unionization in the news industry. What, as somebody in the news industry, in the publishing industry, what do you think, like, what do you make of that, of the, you know, of the previous trend of unionization, its decline and its resurgence in in the 21st century? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of that has to do with, um, like I said, you know, this was like, for me, this was like a dream job. It was something I always wanted to do. And I think a lot of it has to do with that kind of um, conflation of, you know, valuing the work in this kind of like ideological way um, Mm -hmm. and then devaluing it as labor, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And so like, I think there's a way uh, Sarah Jaffe has a great book, Work Won't Love You Back, that's about this kind of labor of mm-hmm. love myth. And I think that in journalism and in the media, I think, you know, people are really passionate about this work. People see, especially for the journalism, see it as like a, a public good. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's a sense that it is that is something that, uh, you know, that you do for the love of it and that the, um, if not the prestige of it, that the value of the work is something that is rewarding in and of itself. And I think that that has kind of led to um, or led for many years to sort of a decline in the way that journalists and publishing professionals actually see themselves as workers. And I think recently, um, just with the turn that, <laughs> turn that things have taken economically, politically, mm-hmm. I think there's been um, really yeah, a resurgence in, in how journalists and um, publishing workers see themselves as laborers and see their work as labor that does have value as labor and needs to be treated as such. I think that's been one of the most exciting trends in the last few years is seeing people in those kind of professions who, uh, like you said, are attracted to the profession out of a love for 
the product or the service that may be coming out of it, whether it's uh, writers or educators, nurses, uh, people who care about their their readers or their students, their patients. And that has been such a leverage against workers and trying to uh, prevent that identity as a worker. So seeing this resurgence of, you know, class consciousness among, you know, white collar professionals and these types of professions and just seeing the massive success like which all have been able to achieve in terms of unionizing and securing a contract is just really uh, I think it's very promising for the future. Thank you. I think so, too. Yeah, the News Guild has been doing amazing work. And yeah, I mean, I think it's also like there's a, a kind of like sense of scarcity, right? There's a kind of rarification of these mm. jobs or the sense that you should be right. like, sort of lucky to be there. And I think being able to say that, like, no, this is a public good and it's something that should be available. It shouldn't be built on the scarcity model as an industry, um, I think is really, really important. And yeah, I think that there's been such a huge wave um, of unionizing, not just in, in New York publishing, but in you know local papers and just um, so much great work that is really exciting to see it really feels like uh, a new era kind of right yeah well there is i mean there the, uh you know as far as the scarcity bit uh, there you know there, there's a huge loss of journalism jobs out there you know i mean the decimation of of local papers is is something that that basically everybody knows about and the you know i've talked to some of the reporters at, at local news stations here and it's like it's crazy the like the hours that they work and the um the pay that they get and the benefits that they get or lack thereof in the case of the 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 latter two things i mean it's just it it, it is really kind of um I mean, it, it's absurd. Uh, the the exploitation. The last time that we spoke to somebody from from New York was we spoke to the the folks in the New York University Graduate Workers Union, and um, you know the there are similar veins there in, in so far as you know labor that was once valued seemingly is no longer anymore because i know people that in alabama that are graduate workers that have you know like a whole ass degree right that are making minimum wage in a uh you know like working for their university while they're in graduate school i mean it's like and not getting tuition assistance on top of that you know like they're paying tuition to go to grad school with a degree and making seven dollars and 25 cents an hour like that is insane to me and it's not i wouldn't say it's quite that bad at at, at newsrooms but it's not much better i mean it's it, it, and, and so talk to us about the you know where y'all were at before you got the contract at the new yorker yeah so definitely i mean talking about history um First of all, we were not the first union drive at the New Yorker. We unionized in 2018, um, but there was a, a drive in the 70s um, that did not end up um, resulting in a union or a contract until about 40 years later when we took the mantle up. Um, and yeah, I mean, a lot of the yeah the, the kinds of stories that you would hear, you know, we had people who had been, wages were very low, wages were very stagnant. We had been people who had been working there for more than 20 years who were making less than $60,000. Um, like we did a pay study and we realized, of course, that there were all these inequities that were especially not serving um doing a disservice specifically to women of color and to women who um, are white women as well. But it was just a, uh, you know, we knew that we had a lot to fix. Um, And we knew also that, you know, people did feel genuinely lucky to work at the New Yorker Mm -hmm. um, and wanted to be there and wanted to, and wanted to stay there and wanted to make careers there. That's why you have people working there for 20 years, um, even for these paltry wages. And I think that we really decided that, you know, it was time to say that 
just because you can pay us this way, you know, the people in power are never going to take it upon themselves to like do right by the workers that you have to actually demand these things um, and, and say that, you know, just because it is special to work here, it doesn't mean that we can accept mistreatment. Like we need to be paid what we are worth and we are, we need protections around our work. That's another thing. I mean, talking mm-hmm. like you are about, um, about newsrooms that are, uh, these jobs are becoming scarce, you know, it's a very precarious industry and we wanted to protect the things that we have um, in addition to raising standards for everybody. Right. Right. And what was the, uh, uh, you know, what, what was the kind of pay scale and uh, bef- if, if you, I mean, if you don't mind talking about it, I've, I've seen it before, but before the contract, before the most recent one. Um, so the minimum salary was forty-two thousand um, dollars before the contract, and with the contract, we were able to get um, immediately a media and minimum salary of fifty-five. It'll be sixty thousand dollars a year by twenty twenty-three. Um, everyone currently in our unit is going to be making above sixty thousand dollars immediately. More than half of our bargaining unit members, um, which is our, our union, is over a hundred people, um, are getting raises of more than ten percent. And like you said earlier, there are people who are getting raises of up to sixty-three percent. Um, so that's pretty huge. That is <laughs> and, awesome. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that really is huge. And so you mentioned that, you know, you unionized in 2018 and here we are in 2021. You just you won an amazing contract. Like, right. This is a huge win. Right. By any standards, this is a win. But uh, that that is a long that's a long time. Right. Uh, so what what did that, what was that like from, you know, winning the union to uh, to the like, what did that campaign look like? Yeah, it was a long one. It was a tough one. Um, I definitely didn't expect when I got involved the kind of fight that we had ahead of us. Um, you know, the magazine and Condé Nast recognized our union fairly quickly in, in 2018 voluntarily, which um, we did not necessarily expect that they would do. Um, and then it, we got to the table, to the bargaining table in November of 2018. And we were having trouble getting to the bargaining table, getting the company to make this a priority and getting them to take us seriously and getting, you know, getting them to understand that what we were looking for really was real change and systemic change and things that were going to be um, going to require work. Right. That it was not just we weren't just looking for the status quo with like a bow on top. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was, you know, we tried a lot. We tried really just like bargaining at the table and being very forthright about the things that we were looking for. Um, we saw a lot of pushback on on many things that we didn't expect to be a fight necessarily. One of those things was um, something like uh, that we did end up winning, winning, which was the end of the use of non-disclosure agreements um, at the company. Uh, this was something that, of course, the New Yorker had very famously reported on and Florida um, and Ferris reporting. And right. This was, you know, something we expected shouldn't shouldn't have been a problem for them. And we just mm-hmm. saw these pushback on things. And so we really felt that it was important, you know, to raise the stakes. Of course, last year um, when the pandemic hit, that really changed a lot of our game. We were already in a place where we knew we were going to have to fight really hard. But then when we went entirely remote and, of course, we were in just this totally chaotic state, um, nobody knew what was happening. And so then we had to switch also to this digital model um, we ended up, you know, we had to mobilize really strongly. We had to stage a lot of very aggressive actions, I think, especially toward the end of the campaign. And in the end, I would say it was the fact that we had a credible strike threat. Um, mm. That was the thing that got us to the contract. Um, and it took a while. It took it took time to build that power. Um, but we did. And our members were really steadfast and were really ready to get the contract that 
we deserved. There were times where we could have thrown it in and accepted something less and accepted something that would have been like maybe okay or that, you know, um, you know, right. would, would have been better than what we had, but not what we wanted. And, and people really said, no, we want to fight for what we know we deserve. What do you credit that resolve to in terms of being willing to hold out for something that that was a campaign or was a contract that you deserved and being willing to engage in those actions? What you know, what do you think it was about your your campaign and your bargaining unit that kept you all together? I think it was, first of all, um, a lot of very active organizing. I think just a willingness to have these conversations. You know, before our union um, formed, the New Yorker was really a place that was very quiet and very siloed, where people kind of didn't talk about what was going on um, in their specific department or in their specific kind of area. Um, and then the, the building of the union was really about kind of like hearing that there were these other things going on that were, you know, that you might be able to relate to and recognizing that there were patterns at work here. This was not just, you know, one person's experience, um, you know, one person who is is feeling this. This is something that is is systemic, like I said. And so I think having those conversations, initiating those conversations and listening through those conversations was really important. But yeah, I think the fact that we do all care so much about our work and care so much about each other was really the thing that allowed us to see it through. Um, and just a belief also that, um, that we were doing the right thing, that, uh, mm. that you know, that we wanted the magazine to to live up to the standards of of what they publish and to say if you're going to be you know they said over and over um we want to be the best magazine in america and we're going to say if you're going to be the best magazine you have to treat your workers the best as well um, right. and that's just a logical right <laughs> yeah and i think that you know um I, I think that it's pretty clear that, that you and that a lot of other people really do uh, take pride in working at The New Yorker and in the work that you put into The New Yorker. And uh, one of the things that cropped up kind of from maybe some of the more uh, boss sympathetic folks was that y'all, uh, one of the quotes was that somebody said you were uh, y'all were gleeful in trying to use The New Yorker's uh, prestige, quote unquote, against it. And, you know, they're referring to some of your signs and the informational picketing that y'all had that uh, yeah, prestige doesn't pay the bills or, you know, something like that. And, you know, this is th th that remark was in either in an article or in a tweet about actions that only came at the very tail end of a of three years of negotiations. Uh, you know, so I don't know. I, I'm kind of showing how I feel about it. You know, like the the idea that they could say you were gleeful in using the company's prestige against it in these negotiations seems kind of it seems kind of silly to me, especially knowing, you know, how long it was, what y'all were asking for, which was not is not crazy. You know, it sounds Real, it is really good in comparison to what it was, but you know, I mean, forty thousand dollars is like a starting salary in Huntsville, right? I mean, uh, that's not, you know, that that's uh, in New. Yeah, it should be higher too, <laughs> right? Yes, right. I right. I don't disagree at all, but like that's, you know, that I am. I have been in my position now for for um, three. I've been at the place that I'm at now for uh, about four years, and I just crossed over forty two thousand now, and. And, and, you know, uh, but but I mean, that's in Huntsville. Right. And that's not uh, New York City is just a totally different ball game than that. So I don't know. I can't I can't. But what did y'all think when y'all saw some of that pushback online and maybe from some of the more boss sympathetic outlets uh, during the, the uh, towards the end of the campaign? 
yeah, it just seemed, I mean, like ridiculous and kind of just like, you know, yeah, to a total like misapprehension of what this campaign was about and, and how it had been going. Like you said, we've been at this fight for almost three years already. Um, it was something that, yeah, nobody wanted to get mm-hmm. to this point. Nobody wanted to, nobody wanted it to take this long. I, I can definitely say, and I think my fellow officers and bargaining committee members and unit council members can all say that nobody wanted to put as many hours and as much energy and as many as much sweat and tears and blood into this campaign as we ended up having to we would have liked it to be done sooner but we really got to a point where we saw that um you know i was reading something today about um about the uh the warrior met strike and saying that like some one of them saying that playing nice wasn't working and and we knew that it Mm. wasn't working and we said we had it was not pleasant for us to get to that point it wasn't wasn't something that we wanted to do again because because we did we do value our work so much it was something that we would have liked to have it handled in a um in a more sympathetic and a more collegial way um but you get to a point where you just have to you have to take it. <laughs> right, right. People won't give you power. You have to build it and you have to take it by using it. That's that's absolutely right. And I think that's something that uh, often gets lost in mainstream media discussions of labor battles that, you know, uh, y'all didn't come right out of the gate three years ago <laughs> with these actions. I mean, it took a long time of trying, uh, trying the polite way, trying the, you know, the easier way, perhaps. Uh but I, I thought it was interesting you said that the company recognized y'all voluntarily. So it was like it was okay to recognize the union, but then once y'all once they realized the union was actually serious uh, and was there for a reason to negotiate a, a you know a contract that really brought some dignity and fair wages and benefits, that's when their attitude seemed to change. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think that, um, you know, as an idea, as a concept, I mm-hmm. think it, it was palatable enough. But I think when they realized that what we were looking for was real change and was thing that, things that were going to require overhaul, something like so one of the things that we did um, that I'm really proud of is that we actually built like a salary structure that is in place when we first. Mm. So when we did our um, our pay study, we realized that you know, there were, I think, among like the hundred odd people in our bargaining unit, there were like 80 plus different salary figures. Um, Like there was not a clear like step system. There were people who were in the same job who were making like way different amounts of money, which again, part of partly has to do with um, just inequity, um, but also just has to do with a kind of like just a lack of structure and a lack of accountability. Mm. And so, um, you know, we went to everyone, we said, what is your job? What do you do? People didn't know their titles or their positions. <laughs> like, right. um, and just kind of, we compiled all this information. We wrote all these job descriptions. We built a structure that says, okay, if you're in this department, this is the entry level position there. This is the next level position there. And these are the salaries that are minima for those positions. And when they realized that we were looking for that kind of accountability and that kind of transparency and to and to create that kind of structure i think that that was something yeah it's a threat to the status quo when we saw so in 2021 uh, kind of our first major escalation um was a full day walkout which was after we had gotten the company's initial wage proposal to us we had proposed wages back in november um and what they gave us was essentially a um yeah, the aversion of the status quo and that to mm-hmm. our membership was absolutely unacceptable. We said we've been already here at that point for like two years. We were like, right. no, this is not what we're looking for. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah. yeah, that I mean, it had yeah. to have been a, it had to have been a, a slap in the face. But I think that is so uh, I, I love that uh, the 
w- one of the kind of most romantic, maybe we could say, things about uh, unions for me is their ability to uh, to to create the terms of of their employment and and their work and their existence and that's something that's really pretty foreign to a lot of folks and that's something that when i i was actually involved in uh, you know involved i i helped with the phone banking campaign for uh for amazon uh with rwdsu and when i would talk to people um you know there there were even some folks some younger folks who you know that this was like the best job that they had ever had you know 15 dollars an hour is is to be fair, hard to come by in Bessemer, Alabama. And so they were like, you know, I don't know about, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know about it. It's, it's, it seems fine to me. And, um, and, and I, I told them, yeah, but okay, the things that you like, they could be taken away tomorrow if, uh, if Amazon so decided. And uh, the things that you don't like, uh, they can be made even worse tomorrow, right? The, 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 thing, the thing about unions and negotiation and bargaining is, is the ability to, you know, y'all created your own wage structure. I mean, that, that is, that's just really, really cool and really democratic in, in a way that, uh, you know, that most people in this country don't get to experience. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and it's something that, again, that kind of, um, you know, that kind of thinking like, well, it's good enough. Well, aren't I lucky, especially in this climate to, to have mm-hmm. a job and to have this job that I like or that has these perks? Um, and then, you know, to realize that that kind of accepting what is good enough when there are, of course, people on the other end of it um, flying to space on their own dime. <laughs> they're, like, <laughs> they're like, wait, <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. And you can realize that, you know, it can be good enough for now, but that it could change at any time. And um, and one thing a structure like that does, that kind of, again, that kind of scarcity thinking, um, it says, well, it's serving me right now. So I don't mm-hmm. need to, I don't need to look out for other people. And I think that that was something that um, we were really able to to build over the course of our contract campaign was really a, a sense of common good and a sense of care um, among our members to say that, you know, because not everybody was paid at, at, at the bottom of the scale. There were people right. who were you know, making plenty more than that. Um, and those right. people were also ready to walk out because they knew, again, that it's not guaranteed for them. It's, mm-hmm. It could change at any time. Um, and I think that, yeah, the only way, again, to to secure that and to secure anything and to secure a future is to is to understand that common good and to bond together around it. Yeah, that that common good, the um, one of the so I, I do not come from a union family. Um, it, it all seems kind of kind of very foreign to them. And uh, they one of the things that that one of my family members said to me about uh, about, it, you know, a union contract and, and in a lot of cases, if you if you do the same work, you make the same amount of money. Like everybody makes the same or pretty similar, you know, depending on how long you've been there. And he was like, "That just seems insane to me. Like, why? You know, like why is it any of my business what uh, the person next to me makes? Like, if I'm satisfied uh, with what I'm making and he's satisfied with what he's making, and if he wants to make more, he can go figure it out and 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 may, maybe make some more. And if I want to make some more, I can maybe go make some more. And you know, what would like what would you say to somebody like that? I, I've tried and I, I can't can't get through with them so i don't know maybe i can send him a clip of you <laughs> but but like what you know did y'all come across stuff like that like in the campaign like somebody saying i you know it's none of your business what i make i don't care what you make i'm happy here leave me alone 
pretty minimally. I mean, it was like something that um, if people were hesitant at first, I think people got really on board with it. Um, you know, one of the most powerful things that we did, um, did this twice actually, was a, a wage sharing action, a wage transparency action where, again, we were all remote. So our entire union, we had a union Slack channel where every member just shared their salary and their salary story, you know, where they came from, what experience they had, how long they've been here, and what what figure they made, um, and then we did it uh, in front of in the company wide Slack so that all of our managers could see it um, mm-hmm. that we were you know sharing this information and that that information is power. And I think for one thing, um, yeah, that that mindset of like, well, if I'm happy, you know, what what I don't know isn't going to hurt me, right? Um, is for one thing really easy to say if you're the person who's not going to be hurt by it again. What we discovered <laughs> right. when we did our pay study is that the people overwhelmingly who were harmed by this lack of transparency and by this lack of system were women of color, especially. Mm. Um, and there are these kinds of vague markers that managers can use when there's no system in place to say like, well, it's about experience. It's about mm. attitude. It's about being a go-getter. It's about, <laughs> you know, whatever. They can just make anything up. Um, and in terms of, you know, I think that there is maybe, yeah, kind of a, a, an, an anti-union talking point that sort of says this idea that like unions will hold you back or will prevent the individual mm. from like prevailing to its fullest form or something. Right. Um, and for one thing, it's like, you know, there's language in our contract that says like these these pay scales that we set up, this, this pay structure, these are minima. People can make more than it at any right. time. Like you can give anybody more um, if they're doing a great job, if they go above and beyond, if they take on special projects, if they have special skills, whatever. You mm-hmm. can always pay people more, but it's about making sure that um, that there is some consistency and that there is an expectation that people coming into this job will, will be starting from a similar baseline. And of course, there are all, you know, other kinds of factors that... Um, that go into, you know, people's professional success, but it's about, about setting people up for success really, and setting up people from different backgrounds for success um, in the same environment. Yeah, I think, and and that's something that's so cool about what y'all did in in that campaign and what really is a value to uh, union campaigns and contract negotiations in general is the communication that you have to have amongst your members. And sometimes, yeah, you really don't know what you don't know. Uh, until you start to compare notes and you know find out how other yeah. people are being treated, uh, sometimes you find out those inequities, like you said, where you know maybe on the surface level you didn't think there was a problem mm. until you lay everybody's name and salary uh, and, and years of experience. You start laying that stuff out, and then you find those patterns, uh, and that and that can really change it. So you know, like you know, your family member Jacob sometimes. You know, he may feel that way until if there was more information he were to learn, if he were to learn like, uh, you know, all the people who came in after him are making, you know, a ton more to do less work. Suddenly that attitude might change a little bit. And I think that's, uh, you know, what which I've been able to establish is is what uh, one of the big potentials of unionizing can do is setting a baseline and setting a transparent set of expectations that makes it harder to be abused and taken advantage of because, you know, as an individual, you were just so much more open for that kind of uh, manipulation. Exactly. I mean, I came, I was definitely one of those people, again, like I came here, I was so happy to just right. open the door. To that, like, that's oh, understandable. Like, oh all of all of my jobs before had been, this is my first salary job. I had always worked at, you know, right. at like three different jobs at a time, like waitressing and tutoring mm-hmm. and like, you know, whatever else I could kind of cobble together. And so, I, you know, I was like, oh, yeah, sounds pretty good. It's the same amount every year. And then, yeah, when I found out that I was like at the bottom of the pay scale, I was like, oh, this is 
this is not as good as I thought it was. Right, right. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, I saw somebody, and I, I don't think they worked at the New Yorker, but they, they had just gotten a sat, or no, it was somebody retelling a story on Twitter about their first time that they got on as a full-time uh, staff member for, for some journalism outlet. And, you know, she was, like, telling her um, uh, retired steelworker granddad, like, she was like, I got, I got salary, I got a 401k, I've got health care. And, and he was like, isn't that, like, a job? Like, what do you mean you have health care? <laughs> but the things that become victories. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, and, 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 you know, the, the, the hours like thinking about I've got the Frito-Lay strike on my mind and the fact that you know they went from an 84 hour work week to a 72 hour work week and that and that's like their win right that they can't be forced to work seven that sounds days a like week. a win from you from, know yeah, somebody, over 100 years ago it's, like it's insane century, yeah. absolutely and I mean I haven't had and I, I, I said this that, that I haven't had to work more than 40 hours a week in years since I since I graduated college and I got and I got this job and it's it's been so nice to have you know i mean even 40 hours a week like that takes up a lot of time and you've got to recoup but there is some amount of time that i can spend like right like i do this i do union stuff i'm able to like go on dates with my girlfriend you know like i have a life outside of work and i you know i do not dream of labor as as the saying goes and like thank god you know like and and that's Everybody should have that, I think, and and everybody should be able to excel in the work that they do, and that's one of the, you know, one of the things that I that I hear about about unions is, is that that they they disallow or, or make it harder to excel as an individual in your job in your job capacities, and it's like that doesn't even make sense because as somebody that is more protected, you're more likely to maybe go out on li- on a limb and try something that you right. wouldn't have tried for fear of retribution or suggest something that maybe will hurt the boss's ego, but you don't care because you know he can't fire you just because he because just because you made him cry, right? You know, and and so these are the. Uh, I, just working in a union workplace just seem like I don't know why anybody wouldn't want to. But I, I've I've already gotten off on, on a long tangent, and we're far away from from talking about uh, talking about you. So the the you said that what you the the way that you were able to win your contract, you feel like the kind of the linchpin was the credible strike threat. Talk to us about like what what is what do you mean a credible strike threat? Yeah, so a little bit similarly, actually, to the kind of way that union formed and then getting to the contract. So we actually took our our strike vote um, back in March, and it passed by 98%. 98% of our union voted um, uh, in favor of allowing the bargaining committee to call a strike, should it come to that. That's great. Um, And, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, and if you had asked me probably in 2018 with this group of 120 people, 98% of them, are they going to, like, be ready to walk out on strike i would have been like i don't know, I don't know. <laughs> um, like i don't even, i don't know if it'll get to that it won't matter um but yeah i mean people were like ready to go but then you know right. three months passed between the strike vote and when we got to that agreement um and it really got to a point i think where you know we were we were making a lot of noise because <clears throat> again we we didn't want to have to go on strike we know mm-hmm. that's a huge sacrifice and it was something that again our members many of them are you know already on kind of like not not making that much money don't have like huge savings new york is very expensive we didn't want to put people out of health insurance like during a pandemic although um, right. we would have had backing from the guild so it wasn't like a terror um but 
you know, I think what really kind of tipped the needle, and I think when the company really saw that we were serious, you know, they had seen this vote, we'd been throughout bargaining, we would have members who would always come and observe bargaining. And so we had our eight bargaining committee members, but we would always have members, um, you know, we wanted to remind the company that they weren't bargaining with the eight people on the bargaining committee. They were bargaining right. with the hundred people who were their staff. Um, and I think one of the things that like really kind of made them realize that we were serious was that we actually published a website, a, a strike website that had not only the, um, the bounds of the picket line we were planning to set out, um, but also had pictures and statements of every member in our union who was committed to walking out on strike. Um, and I think seeing that their staff was ready to put their faces and their names um, mm-hmm. and their words and their hearts out on the line like this, I think made them really like shape up. Um, and it was a lot of work to get there. Again, I think it's, it's a place where, and it's an industry where people are kind of loath to, to sort of stick their neck out. It's, you know, it, it relies a lot on personal relationships and there's a lot of um, there and, and people, you know, do have these close personal relationships with members of management, with other people in the industry. And and people are loath to kind of like rock the boat in that way. And I think it was a really powerful statement for people to come together and say, no, I am going to stand up for this and I'm going to, I'm going to do it publicly and I'm going to put my name and my face on it. Um, Yeah. I got to say, (laughs) go ahead. Okay. Okay. I was just going to say, that was so huge. The fact Mm -hmm. that people were willing to do that, um, you know, I, I remember having a conversation with a experienced union organizer down here in Alabama about that, and she was just shocked. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it was it was hard for her to process that m- that many members would be willing to go out publicly right. uh, and take a stand like that because, uh, you know, certainly in my experience and in her experience, it's it's hard to get people to even – uh, behind the scenes sometimes mm-hmm. commit. Uh, so to, to put it out there like, hey, here's who I am and here's what I'm about and here's what I'm willing to do on behalf of my brothers and sisters, Right. Uh, that's huge. And that is really a testament to the sort of organizing that y'all did uh, all along. Thank yeah, and I think that that, that is, you know, that's one of any time you you read anything about like oh how how do i organize how do i organize an effective union how do i do a strike that's one of the you know that escalation from you know uh okay we've we've uh um We've got a committee then uh, maybe voting in private and releasing the results of that vote like that. That would be the the authorization of the strike. You know, that vote in and of itself is a very big thing. But you don't have faces. You don't have a public commitment from all of those workers itself. And so that is another escalation. And like you said, you think that it it kind of uh, it kind of put the fear of the Lord in them. And that is so important to, uh, you know, the being able to have that kind of power. Because like Adam said, I mean, even in a lot of union workplaces, that that is not something that a lot of folks are are willing to do. And and they're not willing to do it because, you know, they fear some kind of uh, retaliation from the boss. But if everybody does it, it's the same logic as as a strike. If everybody does it, then we can't we can't be fired for it because we have the leverage there. And so taking that collective action is it, it really is powerful it's not just something that that you read in books from people that like don't know what they're talking about you know they're in the books for a reason it it, it works yeah i mean to go back to that question of glee again while we were not like gleeful to be like doing this i will say that there was like 
the solidarity was just like so amazing. And mm-hmm. to realize, I think, yeah, it was not just people saying like, oh, I'm going to like put my picture up. I think it was people really realizing like, well, if nobody else does this, like there's no one else who can do this for me. Like right. I have to do this right. and everyone beside me has to do it. And I think that that kind of collective feeling is something that I had never experienced it in that, in that way before of people really saying like, I am committing myself to this collective and to this cause um, and we're going to do it together. And there's, you know, there's no way I can back out. Um, and so I think that that was like, yeah, it was just like such, such an amazing, yeah, sense of, of strength that I think that, um, you know, it, it comes from using it. I think it was like, we had these kind of mini actions building up to that and it took a while to get there, but, but people really felt committed to, to the cause. Um, and it's something that, yeah, it just allows you to like take so much power over the conditions of your work when you say that, no, we have the power. We make right. the thing. <laughs> right, right. Do you think that uh, that like collective experience has that changed you, and has that changed your your colleagues? I think so, definitely. I mean, I, yeah, it's definitely changed me personally. Um, I think it's changed our workplace for the better. I think it, um, you know, I, I hope that it has historic implications. But yeah, I think that you know, I had always I came from kind of. Um, an arts background from writing um i used to be a ballet dancer <laughs> like or i was trained this one and like it's a very kind of like culture of um of yeah just like trying your hardest and saying like okay like i'll, I'll pay my dues and then i'll mm-hmm. get there it's very kind of a solitary feeling and a solitary mm-hmm. idea idea and i think um yeah like i said when i was elected the secretary of our union i don't think i knew what i was taking on and um and i think if you nobody who's me, elected secretary ever does <laughs> right. as, as somebody who's a yeah as someone who's secretary of two labor organizations yeah uh, <laughs> um, and yeah and if you would have asked me like will you go on strike in x amount of time like with your colleagues i think i i don't know i don't think i would have said no but i i just it would have been such like a, a foreign idea to me mm-hmm. um but i think over the course of that campaign like really seeing like not only not like how many people depend on like me personally but like seeing how all of us depend on each other and how all of our actions like affect each other um and how we can all support each other in this way was yeah just a really incredible thing that i had not thought about i mean it really made me think about like I don't know. I, I I wouldn't have said that I was like an activist of any kind really before this. You know, I mm-hmm. um, support many causes and like, but I it really made me. It gave me a lot of hope for um, political organizing and community organizing. That if we all commit to this kind of change and that we all all work for it, it's not easy. You know, and it's it's it doesn't happen automatically. It doesn't happen overnight. And it is these series of kind of like small gains, small wins. Um, and it's something that the experience of it, one of our members said today. So of course the happy culmination of all of this is that today our union unanimously ratified the agreement that we got to um, in June. So we had a vote, everyone voted yes. Um, and one of our members uh, quoted, I, th- I think Emma Goldman about how there has to be you know, there has to be joy in the revolution, right? There has to be yeah. dancing and there has to be music and there has to be this kind of care and this kind of communal spirit. Um, and I think that was something that was uh, really an important part of our campaign as well, is that it was very much out of, um, yeah, out of kind of a, a, a love, if I can be, yeah, you know. Yeah, absolutely. A Amen, sister. <laughs> I'm a romantic about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we are not opposed to romantic language. Uh, <laughs> and, and the spirituality of collective struggle. 
Yeah, I, I mean, it is, It you know, I have, as somebody who has never, you know, I, I've uh, gone through a couple of stages of, like, trying to be more spiritual or religious, and, it, and I, I, it's never really kind of clicked for me, I guess, but um, I've had as close to a religious experience as I ever have, uh, like, talking to workers, you know? Like, and it's, uh, it's the, the kind of you know that love that that kind of organizing and the um and and that working together can foster between people who otherwise have pretty little in common um i i i mean it's it's beautiful i think uh, and so that i'm you know i'm i'm just so excited by what y'all are doing i'm i i, I really enjoyed talking to you tonight and and it's so cool see- hearing that y'all have kind of that same that that same like twinkle in your eye i guess you could say yeah. <laughs> about it i i think that's great <laughs> uh so what what's kind of the the future look like i guess it, it, to to kind of wrap it up how you know wh- what is what are y'all's goals going to be going forward how do you think that this is going to change the new yorker as as a magazine as an institution and, and what is wh- what is the union going to be doing moving forward yeah so i mean i definitely hope i think one of the most positive changes um that will come out of this is that again i think it will just allow diversity to flourish at the New Yorker. I think it will open the doors for a lot of people who wouldn't have had a chance to work there otherwise and to not only to work there, but also to feel secure sharing their ideas and sharing mm-hmm. their opinions um, and having input um, and doing the kind of work that they want to do. So I hope that that brings uh, more passion and more expertise um, and more perspective to to the work that, um, that we already do. Um, as far as internally, I think our kind of next step is really making sure that um, you know, that our contract is enforced. I think that that's something it's, you have a contract, but it's also organizing never stops. You have Absolutely. To kind of mm-hmm. Make sure that, um, that, yeah, that people are abiding by that. So I think it's kind of about continually empowering people to know that what they are entitled to and to know um, what they can demand and what they should demand. Um, and so I think that's a lot. Of course, we have, you know, we didn't get everything everything that we wanted in our contract it's an amazing contract but we had a few like cherries that we wanted so Mm -hmm. there are things for you know for contracts too um down the line but can't think about that yet (laughs) (laughs) we just came off the wind um so yeah i hope that it's more solidarity i hope it's i hope it's just like building more and you know continuing to be creative and find new ways to um to reach each other and to and to connect throughout the industry i think that's another thing um is that was really important to us was that we wanted to raise standards not only at the New Yorker and not only at Condé Nast, but also uh, throughout the industry. I think we want to right. find ways to help out the freelancers who work at the New Yorker, who were such the Freelance Solidarity Project was such a mm-hmm. huge source of support um, and solidarity throughout our campaign. I think we we really want to do right by them, and I think we want to um, you know continue to to yeah raise standards throughout the industry um, and and build solidarity not just in New York, but um, and not yeah and not even just in our industry, but across. I think right. across labor um, and across the country. Yeah. On that note, do you have any kind of like final uh, or, or lessons to pass forward, maybe to uh, media workers who are not unionized yet or, or don't have a union, you know, like in their immediate future necessarily, but maybe hear the sort of success that y'all have had at the New Yorker and, uh, you know, what, what would you say to those types of folks, especially those of us uh, down here in Alabama? 
I think I would just say that, like, you already have the power. <laughs> you just have to find it. You just have to identify it and you have to um, nurture it and you have to exercise it. It's a muscle. And I think um, just mm-hmm. reaching out to other people, it's so it seems so simple and it is so simple, but it just starts with a question. It starts with how are you doing and yeah. just reaching out to a fellow worker and seeing what you can build together. Um, and I think it's just one person at a time. I think it's one conversation at a time. Um, so being patient, but also being, uh, having vision, I think don't, don't settle for less. Um, and yeah, know what, know what you need and, and go for it and be ready to put in the work. Hell yeah. <laughs> All right. I don't have anything else. Either of y'all have anything else you want to close with? All right. I, I think, just, yeah, I appreciate you so much for making the time with us. And, uh, also just really congratulations again on the, yeah. on the great win on this contract and looking forward to many good things to come. Thank you so much. And uh, good luck to y'all. And thank you for having me. It was again, it was great to talk to you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Hannah. <laughs> All right. Solidarity. All right. Solidarity. <laughs> All right, so that that there we go. That that wraps it up. Ben, you can go ahead and turn the stream off. And uh, thanks everybody for tuning in. I appreciate yeah, it. Thank you.